October 22, 1972 in Miami, Florida. The 4-0 Dolphins had a home game that day. The same day the Oakland A's would beat the Cincinnati Reds in Game 7 to win the World Series. That same night, you may have stayed indoors to beat the Heat and watch the sixth ever episode of the TV show MASH. That night's episode, Yankee Doodle Doctor, when General Clayton commissions a documentary crew to descend on the 4077th. And hey, if you weren't into the shenanigans of Hawkeye and Trapper, maybe you flipped over to NBC to watch either Macmillan and Wife or Columbo. This was the day before the new musical Pippin debuted in New York on Broadway, starring Ben Vereen. This is when the hot new movie was Lady Sings the Blues, starring Diana Ross and Billy D. Williams. A day when the hot song on the radio asked, Won't you play with my ding-a-ling? Thank you for that, Chuck Berry. And perhaps an even more important question than the one Chuck Berry asked, were you part of the Pepsi generation? Our title sponsor asked that very question on the radio. There's a whole new way of living. Pepsi helps supply the drive. Oh, yeah. It's got a lot to give to those who like to live. Because Pepsi helps them come alive. It's the Pepsi generation coming at you, going strong. Put yourself behind the Pepsi. If you're living, you belong. Whoa, a key change. Uh, Pepsi had plenty to give, that's true, but so did Don Shula's Miami Dolphins. This Sunday was week five of the 1972 NFL season, and the game where Miami star quarterback Bob Greasy was carted off with a dislocated ankle, and to the rescue came the old warhorse Earl Morrill, 38 years old, seven years older than the next oldest Dolphin. But then, we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is Josh Lewin, and yeah, let's go ahead and dive in. Week 5 saw mild weather for a home game with the San Diego Chargers. Sunny and a high near 85 for a 1 o'clock kickoff, and being back home was always a good thing. The seats were closer to the field than in most stadiums, allowing the Orange Bowl crowd to become part of the game. We could feel the fans screaming. The place vibrated, said the great Larry Zonka. It was like a giant heartbeat, is what he said. And we'll discuss later in the podcast how Zonka himself was a heartbeat of the Dolphins' ground game. For the season, he'd end up with a career-best 1,117 yards rushing and a half a dozen touchdowns. And on this afternoon, the Dolphins came out in their home whites, tip to tail. San Diego in its electric blue tops and bright yellow bottoms. They were in with a record of 2-1-1, losing only to San Francisco, and led by the aging quarterback with the unusual number 21 on his back, John Hadel. Celebrity fans were starting to show at the Orange Bowl. Mickey Rooney, Flip Wilson were season ticket holders. There were always 80,010 fans at every game waving their hankies. The Dolphin Dolls were a thing. All junior high and high school girls who were baton twirlers at halftime. Now, this was the year the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders had replaced their own high school girls with adult women in very provocative uniforms. But the Dolphins, for now, were sticking with their wholesome thing. Early in this game, Greasy went down. He had faked to Mercury Morris, going back to pass looking for Jim Kick, who was open. But as Greasy got rid of the ball, Deacon Jones charged him from the left side. Ron East was coming from the other side, low at the ankles. 
Everyone was watching the ball, which was underthrown and almost intercepted, but then Rick Weaver on the radio was saying Greasy is shaken up on the play. This was the play that would change a lot, and I asked Greasy, which was the hit that really did him in, the great Deacon Jones or the lesser-known Ron East? Yeah, Ron East, that's who it was. Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw the pressure, and I, and I knew I had to get rid of the ball, but I thought I could get rid of the ball stepping into it. Uh, before anybody hit me, and uh, sure enough, I threw the I threw the pass, and then the defensive back fell at my legs, like like that. So many times during ball games, defensive linemen fall at your feet, and nothing happens. Well, this time he fell halfway up my leg, and uh, dislocated my ankle on the air. I knew I knew I knew right away that uh, I wasn't going to be playing. Uh, for for a few games, I wanted to get well as soon as I could, even though just to play with my kids. Um, I didn't know I didn't know whether I'd be back that season or not, but um, um, I just wanted to get healthy again and uh, so I could play with my kids. But uh, as it was, I got well to, f- to finish the season with the Dolphins. Bob Greasy's lower leg was numb, and he was sure it was broken. As it turned out, it was a dislocated ankle that would keep him out six to eight weeks. Here's Larry Little. Well, it wasn't all doom and gloom because we knew Earl was a veteran quarterback, but we knew we had to block harder—not block harder, but in pass protection, we knew it would have taken him longer to get rid of the football than Bob because Bob had the scrambling ability, and Earl didn't. But ironically. Earl had the longest run from scrimmage that year, 37-yard touchdown. So. Now, Little, by the way, a former Charger himself. He knew that San Diego D-line all too well from going up against them in practice. Was he charged up to be playing against his former team, the team that had given up on him not too long ago? Well, I played against the Chargers before that year, but always took a lot of pride in playing against them. See, Gilman was the coach to show him what he missed in my, by training me. And what about the brilliance of Joe Thomas to know what you had? Joe Thomas? Yeah. Uh, Joe wanted to sign me the day after I signed with San Diego. He called me. And I told him, Joe, how much are you going to give me for a bonus? And Joe said, oh, we're going to give you $500. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I signed with San Diego for $750. So, <laughs> Hard to believe San Diego didn't know what it had in Larry Little. He came home to Miami, traded for his old Miami childhood friend, the cornerback Mac Lamb, matter of fact, Yada, yada, yada. Larry Little was summarily elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But let's get back to another future Hall of Famer, Mr. Greasy. He was the unquestioned leader of this offense, a veteran presence with a very sharp mind. Pro Bowl appearances already in the bank, and through it all, maybe the most humble of all these Dolphin players. He contended he was not physically gifted, that he succeeded mainly with intelligence and preparation. Listen to him here some 50 years later. I was uh, I was never the the best athlete. I was never the best. I played I played basketball uh, as, as a great great school. Uh, I wasn't the best player on the team. Uh, I played uh, little league baseball. Uh, I pitched. I played pony league. I played coat league. I, I I was never the the top player. I was always one of the best players, and. Um, I just, I always looked at, all right, what do we have to do to win this game? 
And if we did it, then I always thought about, all right, don't show off. Don't, don't be, don't be, don't be a show off about winning this game. What do we have to do to win next week's game? And that's just the way I was. It was the way I was brought up. Uh, uh, I don't know why or how, but, um, uh, it kind of seemed to work out that way, and it seemed to work out pretty good. Well, not to be well, actually, guy, but, well, actually, Bob Greasy was a very good athlete. He had grown up in Evansville, Indiana, as a three-sport star in high school. He had made All-State in basketball, and after going undefeated as a starting pitcher in high school, he was approached by big league baseball scouts, too, but he had already accepted a football scholarship to Purdue. Years later... When Cassie Russell, the Michigan Wolverines basketball star and NBA All-Star, was asked to name the best defensive player he had ever matched up with, pro or college, he named Bob Greasy as a senior at Purdue. Now, Greasy, more known, obviously, on the football field at Purdue. The Boilermakers won their first ever Rose Bowl, beating O.J. Simpson's USC team by a single point. But yeah, he had heard that thing about what Cassie Russell said. Somebody asked Cassie, he said, Cassie, he says, who's the toughest? He said, who's the toughest player you ever played against? Oh, Cassie said. He said, that's a tough one. He said, offense or defense? He said, doesn't make any difference. Who's the toughest player you had to play against? Cassie thought some more about it. And, I'm, and I hear this, and I'm, I'm in Chicago way years and years ago and i'm driving uh from across town or i just got off the plane and the, the cab was picking me up and and we're listening to this interview with Cassie, and he says he says offense or defense he said doesn't matter he says i'll, he says, I'll tell you who it was it was bob greasy <laughs> he's the guy the interviewer said, Bob Greasy, what did he do to make it so tough? Does he? He said, wouldn't let you get the ball. He says, it's kind of hard to score when you can't get the ball. <laughs> Funny how Cassie Russell, basketball star, was the one who maybe diagnosed the game plan of the 72 Dolphins way before anybody else. That was the secret sauce of all that winning in 1972. The other guys can't score and they can't win if they don't have the ball. And as much fun as it is to recall all that with Greasy now, back then he was not a guy who was quick to volunteer any information. Part of the Miami media then was the great Tony Segreto. Uh, the least of the interviews was probably Bob Greasy. Bob was very, very, uh, very protective, did not, uh, w- was, you know, Indiana guy, Midwest guy. And, and, and that's a whole different culture of people. Uh, you know, I do events all around the country speaking. And when I'm in the Midwest, I can pretty much nail it how the audience is going to be. They're going to enjoy your, your presentation. They're going to tell you afterwards how much they enjoyed it. But during that presentation, you're not going to have any clue as to whether they like it or not. They're very stoic. They do their work. They leave their, you know, it, it, because they don't smile doesn't mean they're not happy. You know, uh, I remember there was a shot of Greasy off after the Super Bowl over Washington running off the field smiling. We all sort of looked and went, wow, there's something different. Now, meantime, Bob and I are dear friends to this day. Still a great, great guy, great friend, as, as 
charming and as nice as could be, yet you put him in front of a camera. He was very, very uh, reticent, reserved, picked his words, made sure that nothing was said out of school. Well, now with Greasy out against the San Diego Chargers, Don Shula called for his old warhorse Earl Morrill, who had been a lifesaver off the bench for him in Baltimore in 68. On this occasion, Morrill didn't even loosen up by throwing a pass. The coach just said, you're going in. Do you want to throw a little bit? And the response was, no, I'm fine. And sure enough, he was. Earl Morrill had played for the Pittsburgh Steelers back in 1956 when Mercury Morris was a nine-year-old Steelers fan. Now these two were teammates. Howard Twilley remembered owning Earl Morrill football cards, and now here the old man was trying to keep this Dolphins team undefeated. Earl Morrill was the same age as offensive coordinator Howard Schnellenberger. Three years older than the offensive line coach Monty Clark, he was only four years younger than Coach Shula. He had already been an NFL quarterback for 16 years, and that's what he looked like. On a team of long hairs and mutton chops, he was still crew-cut and clean-shaven, just like he was in the 1950s. In a time of free love and hippie counterculture, he was still looking like a U.S. Army poster. None of that mattered on the field, of course. Could he still actually play was the question. Greasy was asked, what did he think his backup could get done? Well, Coach Hill brought Earl in. He had, he had Earl in Baltimore with him when he was the uh, coach of the Colts, the Baltimore Colts. Earl was the quarterback behind Unitas. And so, Schultz, I think it was his second year down here, so he, he brought in Earl just as a just as a uh, uh, insurance quarterback in case anything happened to me. And, of course, uh, Earl was not a, a, a good practice player. I mean, he was there. And so... You know, everybody saw him practicing missed throws. He dropped the ball and this and everything. Um, so when that happened to me in the ball game, and Earl had to go in, I'm sure there was a lot of, oh boy, here we go now. So Earl picked it up and and not only won that game, but won a whole bunch of other games down the line. And I say this about Earl: there would be no undefeated season without Earl Morrill. Morrill would actually go on to be league MVP, incredibly enough, and on this day, on in relief, he was solid if not spectacular off the bench, 8 of 10 for 81 yards and a pair of touchdowns. And as Greasy would point out 50 years later, well, any quarterback was going to be protected to the nth degree because of that very talented offensive line. The offensive line was was really good, and it was it was... And Monty Clark was the offensive line coach, and it all starts with him. Uh, he brought in uh, Larry Little um, from, I don't know, he was playing for San Diego or somebody out there. He brought in, he also brought in Kuchenberg. Uh, these guys were not high draft choices. Uh, I think there were, some of them were free agents. Jim Langer, the center. Uh, Langer and Little are in the Hall of Fame, and Kuchenberg should be in the Hall of Fame. The tackles, Darm Evans was was a solid blocker. Uh, the whole offensive line, their strength was run blocking, uh, and that's why 
we ran the ball so much is because we did what our strength was, and that was running the football with Zaka and uh, Kick and Mercury Mars. The offensive line indeed kept Morrill upright that afternoon, but really this game would turn on defense. Dick Anderson grabbed a dropped handoff that bounced right up into his arms. He sprinted with those legs pumping 36 yards for an easy score. Just a few plays later, Lloyd Mumford, in as a fifth defensive back, picked off John Hadle. That gave the Dolphins the ball at the Chargers 34, setting up a touchdown pass from Morrill to Howard Twilley, who was off to a heck of a start, by the way. Better stats than the all-pro Paul Warfield, who kept drawing double coverage. So as Twilley was catching this, his third touchdown pass of the young season already, Bob Greasy's wife, Judy, was entering her husband's hospital room along with Twilly's wife, Julie, who had left the stadium in sympathy with her best friend. And when the two women walked into that hospital room, Bob shouted at Mrs. Twilly, What are you doing here? I just heard on the radio your husband scored a touchdown. Sure enough, that's when Earl Morrill had found Twilly in the right corner of the end zone for an 18-yard score after that Mumford interception. Miami had a safe lead of 17-3 at halftime, and using ball control, the Dolphins would ultimately win 24-10. The defense was really finding its groove, holding San Diego to just one late touchdown. That was testimony to the entire unit. And everyone looked first at the star safeties, Jake Scott and Dick Anderson. But 50 years later, Anderson says those corners, like Lloyd Mumford, deserve their due. Well, Lloyd um, was probably the smallest defensive back that, that we had, but he was very quick. And again... Um, it, it was all about teamwork. Uh, Jake and I would generally be the ones that, that if we we could have signals, um, you know, if if the on a, on a zone defense, I could I I was able to to decide what the linebacker in front of me is, and the cornerback was going to do. So I could be in one of three places on any of the defenses that had a zone defense. And so sometimes I would come up and, and send the, the uh, cornerback back deep. Uh, sometimes I'd even send the linebacker out in the flat, and I'd stay with the tight end. So those things, that communication was so vital um, that in, in terms of not making a mistake, people have to be in the right place at the right time and do their job. And that was really the, the key to our, our team's success. Mumford and Curtis Johnson had helped hold John Hale to just 12 completions on 23 attempts. He was picked twice and sacked twice. Offensively, not a single Dolphins receiver had more than two catches all day. But that punishing ground game carried the load. Eight carries, 44 yards for Mercury Morris. 14 carries and 41 yards for Jim Kick. And 13 carries for 70 yards for Larry Richard Zonka. The all-pro right guard Larry Little said Zonk was the blood and guts of this team. Tackle Norm Evans said, I'm afraid if I don't block enough, he'll hit me and break my back. Well, sure enough, Zonka could crush opponents with that famous forearm of his. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But although he presented that hard-nosed image, a nose that would be broken 10 times, by the way, Zonka was actually one of the most intelligent, sensitive players in the game. Howard Cosell called him one of the most articulate athletes I've known. And all of that came very naturally. No put-ons here. He hadn't actually grabbed enough credits to graduate Syracuse, but fact is, he had taken four years of English lit. Zonka has said his big wish is that he had studied even harder and gotten that degree on time. But uh, you've seen that natural curiosity and intellect on display anyway. 
He's hosted American Gladiators, a couple of hunting and fishing shows, North to Alaska and Zonka Outdoors. He has led a fascinating life. And as opposed to the 1970s zeitgeist, he refused to take pain-killing drugs. Team Dr. Herbert Virgin was always quick with the needle for anyone who asked, but Zonka simply never asked. Others did, even if they needed a shot in their chest. Here's Larry Little again. Yeah, on my sternum. And uh, it didn't help either. <laughs> I was still, it was still painful, very, very painful. Doc the Virgin would go back and tell stories about in 1920 when he was at Northwestern University. Man, I don't want to hear that. It's getting me well, you know. But uh, he was a good man. i never forget one time he did, I had ankle surgery. And uh, he invited my wife and I over to his house the night I got out of the hospital to eat for dinner. And I was in so much pain the whole while he didn't give anything for the pain. <laughs> so that's Dr. Herbert Virgin. Not Zonka, though. No way, Jose. He would take his hits and fight his way over the goal line, look up with his helmet askew, sweat dripping from his face, showing no emotion as he flipped the ball to the referee. Don Shula called that the very image of manhood. And no Dolphins fan would disagree. Here's Larry Little again. That name speaks for itself. <laughs> Zonka. I mean, tough. Tough, tough. Uh, great person to block for yeah. because you knew if you give him an inch, you'd take him out. Now, the man was a human battering ram, the original beast mode. Marshawn Lynch had nothing on Larry Zonka, who was originally a linebacker. He'd been a defender in high school, too, and when he got to Syracuse, he was stuck behind the great Floyd Little anyway, so the Orangemen stuck him at linebacker. And that's the way he continued to go at it once he made the transition of fullback and then the running back in the pros. Zonka, as Larry Little said, with that perfect name for what he did and how he did it, will always be remembered in certain circles for being the only player to have drawn a 15-yard penalty for knocking out an opponent who was simply trying to tackle him at the time. That was in the year 1970 against Buffalo, and Zonk recalls it like this. There was a lot of things going on on a football field that perhaps the average fans or even some of the more ardent fans don't really see. Um, defensive backs, um, well, let's just put it this way. I, I did that and was accused of that and did that. But it was a getting even thing more than, any, than, more than anyone knows. Uh, the funny thing about it was is I did it just I went out of bounds and Coach Shula actually was right there and grabbed a hold of me just as I did it. And he said, great hit. And about that time, the flag hit me in the other shoulder. He looked at the flag, looked back at me and said, you dumb son of a gun. <laughs> He he changed uh, you know 180 degrees like on a coin toss because of 15 yard penalty. I think we pretty well had the game in hand, so it wasn't as much. But it uh, it's a warm memory. But let me tell you something else about hitting defensive backs. When you have a receiver like Paul Paul Warfield and Nat Moore in the backfield with you or on the offense with you, if you see an opportunity to turn on a cornerback that weighs 185 pounds soaking wet, and you're 240, you know, and you've got people hanging on your back and you're going down and you see them coming up to join in the tackle and you turn the momentum of, of, of where this impact is going to occur right into them, then the next play, your wide receiver might draw him, draw that cornerback one-on-one. So it all interrelates if you think about it. I wasn't just hitting people to hit people. There's a purpose. There's a reason. Because of Warfield or more, 
had them one-on-one -on -one and their eyes were a little crossed, they'd screw them right into the ground and we'd have six points. Well, on that day, we talked indeed about John Pitts getting knocked out cold with a forearm shiver. And the Dolphins scored a lot more than six that afternoon. But if it ever seemed that these guys were a bunch of schoolyard bullies, no. Those that were there said that was not the case at all. Sensitive, family-oriented, civic-minded, wonderful men from the top of the roster to the bottom. Miami sports casting legend Tony Segreto was there. Uh, the 72 team and I, myself, we all grew up together. Uh, they are my dearest friends. Uh, I still talk to Mercury Morris uh, probably every couple of weeks. I still talk to his 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 friends. I still talk to Larry Little. Uh, I, I still talk, you know, with uh, the Nat Moore. I know he didn't play in 72. I still see and talk with Ed Newman. Uh, these guys are literally family to me. Uh, Don Shula became like a father to me. Uh, and we became extremely, we were close. And he had my respect and I had his respect when I covered him. But after he retired and I retired, uh, we spent time together. We would have breakfast at his house together. Uh, so uh, those guys taught me a lot. And I think I taught them a lot in terms of how we were dealing with the media. So um, it's it just, a, just a, for me, it was my, you know, Camelot time. Uh, and, and to this day, uh, you know, they, they, they mean a lot to me. Dick Anderson, my goodness gracious. Dick Anderson was the first one to show up at my father's funeral 20-something years ago and the last one to leave. Uh, and just uh, just dear, 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 dear friends. Merck gives me heck all the time. He gives me, let's put it this way, Merck gives me shit all the time about how my glasses had tape around them. You know, I was I would talk to Jim. I would talk to Jim Mandich two days before he passed away. So those guys mean a lot to me. After the games in Miami, the fellows would go out in groups to celebrate. Some would go to Lums and have burgers and beer after the games. And led by Larry Little, some would go to Prince Barbecue on 27th. And from there to the Jetaway, the biggest nightclub in town for the African-American players. Performers like Lionel Hampton, Count Basie and Sammy Davis Jr. would stop by to play there and Larry Little would happily hold court there. He had grown up on 19th Street in Overton, not too far away. He was always proud to show his Dolphins friends that part of the city. Although the tight end imported from Green Bay, Marv Fleming, said his favorite late-night hangout was The Forge, a Miami Beach restaurant featuring things like baked Belgian escargot. Larry Little says the Jetaway did not have Belgian escargot on the menu, but... That's what made the Dolphins team of 72 so great. It was a melting pot of different men from different backgrounds, all of them coming together for a singular purpose, to erase the memory of the Super Bowl loss from that past January and build something Miami sports fans would always remember very fondly. Well, next week, another brick in that wall could be cemented into place. They'd be hosting Lou Saban's Buffalo Bills, led by the great Orenthal James Simpson at running back. But as for week five of 1972, despite the injury to Greasy, all good in the hood. Blue skies above the Orange Bowl and a first place record of a perfect 5-0. This is Josh Lewin. Thanking you so much for listening to our podcast series. Once again, your happy final score from October 22nd of that memorable year, Miami 24 and San Diego 10.